This is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. The Seraphic Saturday Podcast is produced by Alexis Ame and hosted by Patrick Dupre Quigley. My name is Thomas McCarger, and this is a Seraphic Fire Media Production. Welcome to the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. My name is Patrick Quigley, and I'll be your host on today's show exploring Georg Friedrich Handel's masterpiece, Messiah. We'll talk Messiah's context and the influence Messiah continues to have in 21st century America. This is going to be a musically rich show today, so I encourage you to check out the track playlist for this episode on our blog at seraphicfire.org blog. There you'll find more information about the music and musicians on our show. When Handel penned Messiah in 1741, he was already unarguably the most famous living musician in England. Handel initially developed his reputation composing Italian language operas, which were at the time all the rage with London's musical cognoscenti. By the time of Messiah's writing, Italian opera had fallen out of fashion in favor of the more novel oratorio. An oratorio is an unstaged, uncostumed, semi-dramatic musical production in English, which in Handel's treatment featured endless fantastical combinations of orchestral and vocal forces. Prior to Messiah, Handel had premiered five other English language oratorios to spectacular acclaim. Oxford University students reportedly sold their furniture to buy tickets to one such happening. Handel's collaborator for at least one of these first five oratorios, Saul, was the English librettist Charles Jennings. In July of 1741, Jenin sent Handel a new libretto comprising abstract biblical prophecies of the Old and New Testaments. This new oratorio, titled Messiah, was remarkable for many reasons. Messiah 
doesn't fit in to most of the, well, it certainly doesn't fit into the operas. In terms of the oratorios, it doesn't really fit because unlike all but a very few oratorios, it has no character. That's Nick McGeegan, conductor laureate of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. For 20 years, Nick was the artistic director of the Göttingen Handel Festival in Germany and has performed and recorded a large portion of Handel's operas and oratorios. Unlike the St. Matthew Passion, Jesus does not actually appear. And that's mm. very unlike a Handel oratorio where Samson or someone, there are people who sing those characters. So it goes into a small little group of oratorios, if you like, which are non-dramatic, let's put it that way. Uh, the occasional oratorio, which is precisely that. It's an anthem rather than it doesn't have a story. So from that point of view, it, it's unusual. Although it has the shape of other Handel oratorios, in other words, it's in three acts with soloists and a choir, there's only two times in the oratorio where people play a role. One is the angels in part one singing glory to God, and the other is uh, he trusted in God, where it's all the people standing at the foot of the cross mocking Christ. Messiah was a hit at its premiere in Dublin, and while early London performances saw lackluster interest, Messiah would soon be the toast of music in both England and across the continent. The work entered that rare world of pieces that have never fallen out of the repertoire since the day of their premiere. I think that the danger with Messiah is that it's so popular that it's eclipsed other works of Handel's, and therefore people think, oh, Handel's oratorios are all like Messiah, and in fact they're not. Another thing that's unusual about it is that the text is front and centre. There are very few what you might call brilliant arias. Rejoice is the, the main one, where there's more music than words, if you see what I mean. Whereas a lot of the arias, like he was despised, it'll say it's words first. It's also why perhaps Handel orchestrates it less elaborately than any other piece. Looking back from our 21st century perspective, Messiah is one of the most enduring works of music's Baroque period. But what does that even mean, the Baroque period? The Baroque era in music is typically associated with the years 1600 to 1750. So it follows the Renaissance from approximately 1400 to 1600 and leads into the classical era, which will be 1750 to about 1825 or so. That's Dr. Brad Diamond, professor of music at Samford University and longtime tenor with Seraphic Fire. What's happening during the Baroque in music is we have the rise of large art forms, including opera and oratorio, and we have the building towards functional harmony. So functional harmony replaces modality really about the time of Monteverdi, right around the turn of the century in 1600 say. And what we're talking about when we talk about functional harmony is the traditional drive to the cadence that listeners now experience with classical music. And this would be a perfect opportunity to illustrate what we mean by drive to the cadence. So, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. Where does this want to go? Where does this scale that we've built want to go? Well, it wants to continue upward to the tonic, 
do. So why does it want to do that? Because the system of notes that have led up to that point have given us this progression, the sense of drive or emotion toward resolution. In the Baroque era, we tend to build a series of harmonies, a series of gestures that drive us toward a specific resolution. If I was to sing a series of tones that aren't consecutive, but still have drive to a particular location, it might sound like, do mi so fa re ti. Again, there is the assumption that we will continue moving forward toward the point of resolution. Brad, you've sung this piece hundreds of times, both as a soloist and a chorister. Could you maybe share with us one of your favorite moments in Messiah? So every time I hear the soprano soloist get to the aria, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I feel like I'm hearing this piece for the first time. In particular, as she and the strings get to this point to where she sings, and the worms destroy this body. The first time I heard that, I really appreciated the profoundness and the severity of this work and its importance to me as a singer. And every time I hear this moment in this aria, it just makes me smile and it makes me feel something internally that I really connect with this piece. I know My Redeemer Liveth is the only, only aria in oratorio that makes me want to be a soprano. That's the only one. You just heard the voice of Clara Osowski, artistic director of the Source Song Festival in the Twin Cities, a member of the Seraphic Fire alto section, and a committed mezzo-soprano. I asked her what was her favorite part about seeing the choruses of Messiah. I think Handel choruses in Messiah are, have some of the best endings, the best dismounts in all of choral music. You have made it somewhere. There is a cadence of cadences. I also caught up with Nola Richardson, soprano and member of Seraphic Fire. I asked her about some of her favorite moments performing the work. Well, I think there's always something really special. As the soprano soloist, you sit for about 45 minutes before you get to stand up and sing your first thing. And so 
I always find when I'm sitting there, there's so much to enjoy listening to my colleagues, but then when the PIFA starts, I always know that that's my cue to kind of stand up and kind of just open the mood I want to set for my opening russet. So it's kind of amazing each time, even though I know it's coming, it, it really starts this kind of physical response. Like my heart starts fluttering. I just feel this like incredible kind of tingly energy. I, I think you could play that music to me in any other setting, it would almost kind of cue this response because it's like, oh, it's, it's my turn and I've, I'm about to tell this story. And so I feel like that's always special. And then it's also just so magical that the soprano gets to set up the pastoral scene with the angels and the shepherds and you finish um, and saying, and then the choir behind you comes in. Messiah's popularity was so great that by 1770, it even reached across the Atlantic to the American colonies. The premiere of the complete Messiah in the United States, however, would not come until 1818, 43 years after the American Revolution. On Christmas Day, three-year-old enterprising Boston music organization, the Handel and Haydn Society, gave Messiah its full New World concert premiere. Handel and Haydn started a tradition in 1818 that would soon be a regular part of American concert life, and Messiah became very familiar to American audiences and the public at large. But unless you belong to a family with long traditions in either performing or attending concerts of classical music, Messiah as a larger work was by no means an inevitable part of American childhood. The first time I heard Messiah, believe it or not, was 1992. That's Reggie Mobley, countertenor soloist with groups such as the Academy of Ancient Music. Reggie is the newly appointed program consultant to the Handel and Haydn Society and has been a member of Seraphic Fire for 15 years. As a singer, Reggie focuses primarily on music of the Baroque period. As an advocate, Reggie brings awareness to historically silenced voices in classical music, particularly composers and performers of color. 92 was the Quincy Jones Sulfa celebration. Oh, thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get up. And uh, someone in my church just happened to buy it and loan the CD to me because he, he knew that I liked classical music. And I was completely floored by it. Completely. And after I heard that disc, which I then went and bought for myself, and I still listen to every Christmas time because <laughs> it's still amazing. Yeah. I went to the public library and found every recording I could, every cassette and every CD I could find of Messiah, went home and then listened to it nonstop. Just full versions, highlight versions, whatever I could find. That year, like 92, 93, all I cared about was Messiah. As an accompanist, I had played a few of the arias at church gigs that I had when I was 13 and 14. But when I was 15, I heard the uh, Louisiana Philharmonic play it for the first time. And I remember sitting in that room and thinking, oh my God, this is first, this is so much better without an out of tune piano or an organ playing along with it. 
And, and I think of this at this point in my life, I was primarily concerned being an instrumentalist, being a, a, a keyboardist and a percussionist. And I remember thinking just how powerful it was to have English words to a piece that was hundreds of years old that I didn't have to go through a translation to hear. And I realized the flexibility of this piece. What is it about Messiah that for English speakers, but let's say Americans in particular, why has this become a piece that many, many people that come particularly, I think, from the South can draw a a line of musicianship from that first experience with Messiah to a career later on in life? Is there something in general that you think that it calls out to you besides just being one of the greatest pieces of music ever written? I think language has a lot to do with it. Those of us, you know, especially from the South and growing up in church and things like that, like we know the King James version of the Bible. It's just something that we understand. Like this is a huge monumental piece that is accessible because upon first hearing, we know exactly what it says. We know exactly what it means. We probably know you know exactly where each of those scriptures come from it's kind of already personal like it's just just a natural extension of something that we already know we're familiar with it it crosses over so easily it doesn't feel as if people are working hard to take this music and put it under different rhythmic and cultural guise it isn't simple it's just natural it feels like it will fit the clothes that is given to it why do you feel that let's say for the African-American community, particularly in the United States, why has Messiah been such a large part of the cultural experience? I think it's because we know it. Because Messiah has been such a cornerstone for English-speaking countries for so long, it's become part of our DNA, I think. Black people, Latinx, people who've, who've grown up in the U.S. or Canada or in the U.K., we feel like we belong or this piece belongs to us because it's a part of our tradition ingrained in our culture. Yeah. You know, hearing this Quincy Jones version before the handle itself, I immediately felt as though I was welcome in this work of art. So furiously rage together. Why do the people imagine a vain thing? Why do the nations rage? The nudity rage back. Why do they rage so furiously together? This week for our listener mail segment, internationally recognized Handel scholar and dear friend Nick McGeegan joins us to help answer some of your questions. So in preparation for this podcast, we've received a number of questions from our listeners about Messiah, some basic, some highly involved, but all are really good questions. The first question, Messiah is in three parts, but a concert usually contains only one intermission. When should the audience clap in Messiah and in any oratorio for that matter? Well, if it was an 18th century audience, of course, they could clap all the time. Uh, they would clap whenever they liked something. When Mozart was doing the Paris Symphony, he'd written a bit that he knew the Paris audience was like, and indeed they did because they applauded. They actually applauded in the middle of the piece, like ice dancing, basically. <laughs> right, yes. In, when, when Beethoven 7 was done, the slow movement was, they clapped so much it had to be encored. 
So they didn't think, they clapped when they felt like it. They certainly probably would have clapped, unlike the old version, say, of doing the, in England, certainly it was considered terribly low class to clap in the Matthew Passion. But I've had audiences clap after arias, particularly after something like Rejoice, if they want to. I'm nothing, I'm not against it. Part of that, I think, is that a lot of the people who come to the concerts aren't regular concert goers. Therefore, they haven't learned all the terrible concert etiquette that you have to sit there looking as if you've recently been mummified throughout the entire concert and not <laughs> show your appreciation, not laugh at the jokes if there are any, and just sort of what Goldsmith described as being in a state of universal petrifaction. <laughs> yes. So we should. So what you're saying is we should loosen up a bit about this. I think so. It's always there's always a bit at the end of part one where the end of his yoke is easy doesn't end loudly particularly. It doesn't have the trumpets in it. So the, ten, the applause is always rather tentative, and people are a little bit afraid, as if they were in some performance of the bourgeois gentilhomme that they didn't know that they might put a social foot wrong by clapping. I think it's fine to do what you want. It is, after all, a performance, and there are performers performing. Well, Nick, thank you for taking time to talk with us. This has been really magnificent, and this is going to be the second episode of our podcast. So thank you for being a guest for that. Great pleasure. Nice to chat. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Patrick Quigley, and this is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. This episode of the Seraphic Saturday Podcast was made possible by the Clinton Family Fund, Bruce and Martha Clinton. The Seraphic Saturday Podcast is produced by Alexis Ame and hosted by Patrick Dupre Quigley. And the Seraphic Fire staff is led by Executive Director Rhett Del Campo. The entire Seraphic Fire family is grateful for the support we receive from our home audiences in South Florida, including the Coral Gables, Miami, Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, and Naples communities, as well as from our individual, foundation, and municipal sponsors. My name is Thomas McCarger. And this is a Seraphic Fire media production.